Permaculture is a system of designing and building natural environments which benefit all the organisms within it. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. I have long been a fan of permaculture because it makes so much practical sense. The man who developed the concept was an Australian biologist named Bill Mollison. Permaculture first requires thoughtful and detailed observation of what exists in any physical space, and only then designing a system that works with nature and harmoniously integrates people and all other living things into the landscape. The aim is to create resilient and sustainable ecosystems, whether in a garden, on a farm, on a ranch, in a city, or anywhere else. My guest, Rosemary Morrow, is a widely recognized permaculture pioneer. She is from Australia and has dedicated her life to teaching permaculture design in her home country and in many places around the world, including Vietnam, Cambodia, Uganda, Bosnia, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. In these difficult places, Morrow traveled to refugee camps, to work with the people there on permaculture projects, with the aim of building healthier and more hopeful conditions. I was honored to speak with Rosemary Morrow from her home in New South Wales. I asked her to give us a short history of permaculture. So I suppose so it's a bit like saying to me if you said, what is nature? You know, it's difficult to fit it into a single description that speaks clearly to you and to anyone listening. So the history, you've got a small town in Hobart at the bottom of Australia, sort of almost the last island in the south of hemisphere. You've got a man who's disgruntled and fed up with what he sees in this small, <laughs> quiet town as destruction and pollution, who goes into a forest and says, I've had the lot of you, I'm out of this and then sits there and just watches for two years and comes back and says, hey, I've got it. I think I know what to do. If we can design our lives and our ecosystems where humans interfere, as in gardening or farming or living, if we build our lives as ecosystems with links and nodes, we can live without destroying the earth. So it was a prototype. Bill Mollison sat down then with David Holmgren, his PhD student, and I reckon David worked on the detail because he's so good on it. Bill had the broad picture. It's one of those wonderful, wonderful duos that come up from now every now and again. And permaculture was born. It was a prototype. It's still a prototype because there's so much in it. Actually, what you end up with is having to look at a landscape and see the challenges in it and then know how to implement appropriate repair. Now that's across bare hills, it's across chemicalised farmland, it's across monocultural gardening, it's across human habitation and society. So it's big. 
But mm. ultimately, your tool for repair and restoration, which is what it is, because no, not sustainability. You'd have to get to sustainability, and the only way is repair and restoration. So you've got this wonderful tool that enables you to bring a number of things together to analyse and then redesign what you're looking at anywhere, anytime. 50-storey building, a desert, a wheat field of 12,000 hectares, you name it, you can look at it. A country, you know, a few square feet, a roof garden, it's right. possible. Right. And I guess that's something I hadn't thought about in terms of permaculture, and that's why this uh, reading about your work was really eye-opening. Um, but uh, I wanted to go back to another uh, sort of part of, of permaculture, which is systems thinking. And um, I understand that you see that as the core of permaculture. Can you explain why systems thinking is the core? Yes, because in a Western society, we have learned to think where we drill down more and more into a topic. So as a scientist, which was my first training, I learned agricultural science as a year of biochemistry, a year of nuclear chemistry, a year of agronomy, a year of um, plant pathology, a year of soil science, and so on. And in soil science, we didn't look at the plant in the soil. <laughs> when we looked at the plant, we didn't really look. We talked about the soil, but we didn't look at it. So systems thinking is where we take all the influences, all the influences, that might be operating on a landscape, look at them a little bit one by one and then put them together before we design a solution. Can I give you an example? Yes. All right. So if we look at something called sector analysis, you look at what you're going to design or put your garden or food forest or agriculture into, and then you immediately look beyond the boundaries. You say, what? are the predominant winds that are going to bring pests or rain or coolness or heat or fire or pollination. And I must include that in my design. Now, where's the sun in winter and where's the sun in summer and what aspects have I got to work with? Where is the sun at various times of the year on my land? Uh -huh. Now, let's put that together with the wind. Now let's have a look at our precipitation. Where's this rainfall coming from? Where's the snow coming from? Is it so big it's going to wash the plants out of the ground? Or is it so gentle? I want to get things planted first. What season does it come? What direction does it come? And what do I have to do to either use it or modify it in my design? So there we've just talked about radiation and wind and precipitation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've talked about rainfall and perhaps snow and perhaps frost and fire. And so now you see we're loading onto some major themes, all the things we need to be considering at one time before we actually look inside at the land. So this is a type of systems where, remember, we're looking at influences of any type. So we might look at pollution. We'd certainly look at what's happening next door. If they're going to build a six-story building, 
take all my son. You know, it's just this concept of being able to analyse first and with that information design. So Western science tends to be reductive, on and on, into precipitation, rainfall, drops, dew, da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, drill it down. Now, it can be good if you're looking for a solution to a problem, but when we're designing, we're, we're juggling. We've got a dozen different balls in the air at once with our eye on each one, and we're keeping them there to come up with a good design. So it's, it's just a very holistic way of thinking about what it is you're designing and what it is you want to end up with, I guess, right? Yes, um, I think holistic's the word, but we can never think of anything because we're human and limited. There'll be something else. But right. we try to consider the main influences together. Right. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Rosemary Morrow. She's a teacher, an author, and system designer, and has worked in permaculture her, for a very long time. Uh, and we're talking about permaculture. So uh, one of the things that I thought was very fascinating in reading about you is that you have worked with uh, developing in developing countries and in cities uh, designing permaculture environments. Um, I'd love to hear some more about that because, as I say, I, I'd never thought of permaculture as something that you could use in a city or, um, or even in a very poor area where there are very few resources. Um, can you talk about how that works? Yeah, because uh, permaculture is essentially Western middle class. There's some wonderful permaculture happening in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia as responsive teaching. But ultimately, people have said, if you haven't got some land, if you haven't got a bit of a garden, you can't do permaculture. Um, and I wanted to challenge that. But also, I think we're all understanding world's population can go to 7, 8 billion and 70 to 80% of those people are going to be living in cities. Mm -hmm. So Bill Mollison was prescient. You know, he said one of his principles, which no one remembers much today, was bring food production back to the cities. Mm. Now, as I've been through those cities, such as Dakar, and Dakar's got 5,000 slums. This or I go... In Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, yeah. Or you'd know of Mexico City over there in the Americas, and there'd be these, oh, and these other huge cities, they're megapoly. Right. So how are they going to be fed in the future? Um, I have seen David Atmer's film, and I actually don't agree with his solutions. I think that everyone in these cities has to be, whether they're flat, called informal settlements, also called slums or favelas, or whether they're high-rise buildings stacked with huge density of population. This is where I've been putting my energy lately and refugee camps, because if permaculture is said to be global, with the solutions it claims, then this, we must apply it to the most intractable problems. We have to put it right where it tests those claims altogether. So um, I have taken the permaculture curriculum and have explored it for areas where people live in tents and containers and 
big numbers in high-rise buildings, often as migrant workers, um, and where their lives are horrific and constrained, to see how they could grow more food. But in the growing of food, you improve the air quality. It's mm -hmm. a better interest. It's um, something people can do. It's learning skills to take home, and it's going to modify the environment. In fact, sustainable cities where permaculture started a long time ago is growing extremely fast. And I think at the same time, we have to take on cities as permaculture designers for people with disability, for COVID-19, 21, 22, 23, which is probably going to happen sooner than 100 years. Mm -hmm. I think we have to consider these huge populations and they must have a quality of life as anyone else must. Um, and too much permaculture is around having your chickens and your fruit trees and your garden. And it's your own bit of paradise, as people say. And that too is a Western view. Mm -hmm. I think that we should think of groups and communities as having a bit of paradise and forget the individual push to secure their own place. Right. So I've changed my courses from use you design where you live, and it might be a tent or it might be a room with six people in a, in a building, but you are also designing for your building and for your neighbourhood. And if you've got your own piece of land, you design for your own, your own community, not just yourself. Right. Because I don't think we can do less than that. Only the community is going to get us through disasters, disasters and is risk prevention. And it also help with mental health, I think. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Rosemary Morrow, teacher, author, and system designer in permaculture. And uh, now you've worked all over the world in developing countries where resources are not plentiful and the land may be degraded because of war or other uh, difficult conditions. So could you lead us through one of your experiences in a developing country or in a uh, refugee camp uh, in terms of what you found when you got there? And then how did you adapt permaculture uh, principles to that place and to the people there? Um, so as we were talking about before, agricultural science was my background, but I didn't get permaculture until about mid-1980s. Until then, I was working in developing countries, mainly in Africa, where I found agricultural science was useless to feed people. So people would talk about growing asparagus for the South African market when I was living in Lesotho, but then I realised that people were hungry. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed a most extraordinary reversal of um, priorities and values that you wouldn't look to people's hunger first being met in the country. So that was before I did permaculture, and I felt extremely helpless. I didn't have the right thing. So when I did permaculture, I was able to put it together properly. Now, because I also worked in development for many years, badly, probably causing damage, I hope not much. I recognised that permaculture was going to be able to fix my insecurities and problems with industrial agriculture. And too much scientific agriculture too. Um, but the answer was seen to rely perhaps in 
industrial technologies, and it still does in terms of climate change, instead of environmental solutions. I think we always want green solutions first. So those things were all whirling around in my mind. Um, when I came back to Australia, a small non-government organisation, Quaker Service Australia, asked me to look at a project in Vietnam. And I guess what's important is that was the first time I was taking permaculture anywhere. Mm. And I was going to a local NGO that I didn't know, we had no contact with, that asked Australia, QSA, through the Australian government for a lot of money in those days, $100,000. And I was sent off to see if they knew what they were doing and whether they had the capacity to manage it. So working with a local NGO is invaluable. I'm alone. I was alone. I'm nearly always alone. Uh, they have to look after my accommodation. They have to look after my food, my internal travel, get me a visa. So even before I arrive, they're making arrangements and we're talking about what can be possible. So you're not arriving in the country and turning up, knocking on the door and say, hey, you know, I've got yeah. something great for you. Um, there is a certain amount of relationship built up. Right. Ultimately, the success, I think, in any country, but particularly developing countries where they get a lot of NGOs and people coming through, is to build that relationship. And I think probably I would consider I'd failed if I didn't have a friendship with at least some people in that place. So the other thing is to look at what they want to do. And very often it can be industrial. So the Vietnamese wanted to do industrial coffee, which they've since done um, in places such as Sapa. And also deciding how much you can work and how big your scope is to scale up. Remember, it costs a lot of money to get you to a country and to get you teaching, it takes a lot of effort. You don't know in many of these war conditions or post-war if you'll ever go back again. So it really matters. And I think before you go, you think, I don't know what I can do, but I want to do my best. I want to offer. It's an offering. It's service rather right. than instruction. So how can I offer this service in ways that really are of assistance to people that they recognize right. so 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 of, they so they are they are um, telling you what what kinds of things they want to work on so you'd let all that decision making happen and they tell you mm. so in this case we went up to sapa which is now a big tourist place and then we went and looked at the market and looked at the people and came back and said these people are hungry they don't need to be working on big coffee plantations that sounds a bit like big landowners and the old French system. Right. So we sat down and worked out how the local back people in that area could do a permaculture course and then teach in the districts of that province. Bit of a pyramid model, but it right. works. And this would be so that they would um, raise their own or raise food for themselves. Is that right? Yes, yes. So the big problem for them was after the war, 
First of all, there'd been huge deforestation. Secondly, after the war, the old system had broken down and people had only grown rice for soldiers for about 30 years. So there was a loss of memory of what they did and how they did it. So that had to be collected. We had to visit and see what they were doing. And then of course you have to find out when the hunger period is. And in that case, it's a cold season. In some cases, it's a dry season. In some cases, it's a very hot, hot system as in Cambodia where everything rots with the humidity. So you have to locate the hunger gap and you have to also look at what they're doing. So it's a matter of new techniques, it's a matter of soil renewal, it's a matter of um, understanding the needs of the people first. And we said, we always feed people first, <laughs> get them water, and then when they're good at those skills, naturally they increase if they want to make money. And they did. They grew orchards and they grew commercial gardens and they started to feed the tourists who were coming up and they created a market. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Rosemary Morrow, a teacher, author, and system designer in permaculture. You talked about climate change. And uh, I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us what you think permaculture's role is in addressing climate change. Mm, it's too late for permaculture to act on every situation. Right. because it would have required the world to be practicing permaculture to keep the CO2 levels down, which caused the warming, which caused the ice to melt, which caused the seas to rise and so on. However, at the moment, I think permaculture has to become, and the human role must become the role of restoration. So permaculture, I think, and permaculturalists have to see themselves as restorers, Think of putting back enough for 9 billion people, not just for yourself. Um, think of putting back as a priority water into soils, water storages, water in biomass. Think of the priority of planting trees and perennial species that can withstand dramatic and unpredictable climate change events. Think of putting back species biodiversity because the loss is so great. So I think permaculturists have to start developing priorities around some of these things to ensure that we really, we're part, not only part of the solution, but in some ways could lead the solutions. And that I think is the minimum, that we right. just must put back more than we are using, and I think that's a very clever measure. You have to do your ecological footprint for that. But we must put back more than we're using, and we need to target it to water, soil, vegetation, biodiversity first. Just get that back, and the world would be a healthier place. Um, and, you know, permaculture is originally permanence, and that's great because that's what we are, would like to achieve. Then it was sustainability, even when it wasn't an option. Then it was resilience, which is when all the disasters are over, will we still be there? Now I think proactivity and real activity is to look for those opportunities and work with your community. You won't be able to do it alone. You must work with others, must scale up. Right. must have your street doing it or your school and the houses around or the local hospital or whatever you've got, the mosque. 
they all need to be scaled up to be participants or, and restorers. I know you've written several books, and I understand mm-hmm. that you're in the process of revising your your book that teaches about permaculture. Uh, can you tell us about the book and, and when, it's, when it might be available? Yes. Um, it became necessary to revise the book because I became more and more aware how Western permaculture is. So I've got a whole chapter and refer to it all the way through for people living in cities. Given 80% of people will be in cities by about 2040, 2050, perhaps sooner if there are environmental crises or wars, it became essential to think about how they could get their food in the city and what people could do to make lives better. So every chapter in the book now has a question. If you're in a high rise or you're in a high density flat housing area, We just call those flat settlements instead of slums and favelas. Here are some questions for you. Here's some design things. Here's how you can change it. That's one. And also a whole section, as you might imagine, on disasters. I think every chapter deals with in the case of accelerated global warming or in case of a local disaster. What would you do? How would you do it in your design? For each chapter. So the book would be one third to more new and enlarged um, permaculture. And I want always to write a book that may count for the next 10 years, right. at least. Right. And I've tried to do that. I don't know if I've got it right, and I have to argue with my editor. And I've also tried to make it global. And I've taken examples from all around the world for water management, because maybe one day you'll need to go and flick through that and say, oh, we could do that in our arid lands, in the States or in Chile or somewhere. So trying to provide global examples that people could refer to in terms of sometimes extreme climates. Rosemary Morrow's new book will be titled The Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. I, for one, am looking forward to reading it. If you want to find out more about permaculture and Rosemary Morrow, please search for the Blue Mountain Permaculture Institute or just search for Rosemary Morrow. Please tell people you know about this podcast and thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. (laughs) 